It's the Dead Lady Show podcast. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond. And then we bring you the very best of these stories here on the podcast. I'm Susan Stone, and I am joined across the continents by Dead Lady Show co-founder Florian Dowsens. Hello there. Hello, Susan. I'm on the West Coast. Oh, how fabulous. Just a few months ago, though, you were in New York with our sister show DLS NYC, right? I know. I'm a little bicoastal sometimes. <laughs> uh, I was lucky enough to be in town when they returned to their live shows. Uh, in New York, the show is curated and hosted by our good friend Molly O'Loughlin Kemper and held, very excitingly, at the KGB Bar's Red Room on the Lower East Side. Ooh. It's very exciting to me specifically <laughs> and to the Dead Lady Show in general because it used to be the headquarters of legendary anarchist Emma Goldman, <laughs> um, who I talked about many moons ago on this very pod. Indeed. At this particular show in June in New York, I presented blues legend Memphis Minnie, which you can hear in a previous episode. And there were several other delightful talks. Yes, and we will be hearing one of them this episode. Our featured lady of the half hour is none other than the legendary... May West. And the very week we're releasing this episode, it's her birthday. She would have been 129 years old, we think. <laughs> and she would be cracking wise uh, still. I think even, even in the grave, she's still cracking wise. She would, and she would be lying about her age, and she would be wearing amazing corsets and making everyone laugh and looking fabulous. I mean, you could kind of, I wouldn't call her the the first sex symbol, but she's definitely like the iconic sex symbol and maybe the first meta sex symbol like she was Ooh. very self-aware and it was it was like a performance of a sex symbol right that's that's i think the joy of watching her like play with being a sex symbol i mean even if you don't know who she is or you haven't seen her you have definitely seen someone who was inspired by or influenced by may west and even just that kind of very stereotypical person making a hourglass shape with their hands to describe a woman. I'm afraid that would be Mae West in a nutshell, in a bombshell. Oh, exactly. Like any sort of Warner Brothers cartoon version of a woman is basically Mae West. Any drag queen, um, you've got to start with Mae West. Yeah, you really do. Well, we don't want to tell you too much in advance of our talk. So Florian, please, would you introduce our presenter? Very gladly, J.R. Pepper is a Brooklyn-born-and-raised artist, lecturer, researcher, and self-described professional eccentric. She's collaborated with a variety of museums and galleries and currently works at the gorgeous Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. Uh, when you're in the neighborhood, do go and visit the suffragists there. Uh, and she also Tell them we said hi. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and at the Burns Archive of Photography. Here she is from New York's KGB Bar Red Room to give us the lowdown on Mae West. Uh, my name is J.R. Pepper, and the lovely dead lady, that sounds weird, that I am presenting tonight is Miss Mae West. She's known for her set of double Bs for brazen and body, her double Cs for curvy and crass, and of course, her double Ds being dynamic and daring. But let's not forget, she was also famous for one big F word, fierce as fuck. Mae West was born in Bushwick, Brooklyn, to battling Jack West and Tilly Decker. She was born on August 17th of 1893, or 1894, or 1900. <laughs> We're not sure. 
because apparently the record keeping wasn't great and may use this very much to her advantage over the course of her career to make herself seem younger. May's mother, Tilly, was a corset designer, surprising no one, and she had a daughter originally that she lost at a very young age, and as a result, she doubted on May constantly and pushed her towards the spotlight, although it seems that May didn't need much pushing. Her father, by contrast, battling Jack, was known essentially as a prize fighter at the early age of 11 years old. He was a bear boxer known for being a tough guy, in addition to essentially setting up his own kind of quote-unquote secret police, which is essentially just being a gangster. Sure, both of these fit very well, and between being a corset designer and her father being so rough and grumble, uh, basically kind of would influence her throughout her life. One of the main influence, though, as you can imagine, is her allure towards large, sweaty, muscly men, because her father would take her to the gym to watch the boxers practice. And this is a theme that we will see again and again with her. She described it as, When I was a little girl, I would sit on the floor and watch all the beautiful men and their magnificent muscles rippling and their foreheads dripping with sweat. Mm. And I felt I learned a lot about men as a little girl just sitting on the floor. But more than anything, she loved showbiz. She would mention later that she danced her way across the Brooklyn Bridge when most girls her age were playing with dolls. Her mother encouraged this. In fact, she adored it. West said in an interview with the News of the World that she started her stage life as early as five, and she convinced her parents that it would be the right thing to do to let her stay up late enough to watch the shows with them. Tilly took her to so many shows that also included the Ziegfeld Follies and would dress her daughter up like one of the first stage moms. Tilly had even placed her in a variety of different talent shows, and by the age of five, she had started winning competitions. Her fierceness started at a very early age. And for example, when she was seven years old, she performed at the Royal Theater in Brooklyn on Fulton Street, probably a condo now. And her mother dressed her in a pink and green satin dress with a white lace picture hat. And when the orchestra struck up, she hadn't forgotten her lines, but she refused to move. She had been promised a spotlight and there was none to be had. (laughs) So she stopped the performance and stamped her foot on the ground until the light followed her to the stage at five. She stamped it again, and the spotlight moved across the stage right onto her, and it caught her, as she described, in the act of demanding her light. She got the loudest applause of the night. The rest of America could ask for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but I'd gladly take the spotlight. (laughs) She began her career around five to eight years old, took a little bit of a break being a teenager, because why wouldn't you? And then she would continue to perform on the vaudeville circuit until about 1911, when she gets a call from Broadway by none other than Al Jolson, and she would appear in a show titled A La Broadway. It seemed that the men, though, were very focused on May, and a reviewer for the New York Times wrote, A girl named May West, hitherto unknown, pleased by her grotesquerie and snappy way of singing and dancing. With reviews like that, it seemed she had wiggled her way into the heart of many a performer and casting director, and she dazzled with her performances of a new dance called The Shimmy. And I have this one up here. This is actually, she was a model for the music for the shimmy. So that's actually her on the sheet music. It's basically a dance where you kind of keep your body in one place and wiggle your shoulders from side to side and show the men what you got. (laughs) After a brief stint at the New Amsterdam Theater, she was cast in a two-part cabaret at the Folie Bergère. And she was very, very unhappy with the lyrics. 
but she would rehearse them as is, then get on the stage and do something completely else. May was often accused of being obscene, profane, and even coarse. In one incident, she was told to tone down her performance on the basis of, quote-unquote, audience complaints. She said that there was nothing wrong with her performance and that she'd be happy to perform it in private for the producer. (laughs) Using the same words and muted mannerisms, I doubt that, uh, she performed the same show as the night before, but she decided to change it so that it was lily white. She said, if you don't like my peaches, why do you shake my tree? After proving her point, she would go back to the stage and be bawdy and wiggly as she had been in the previous performances, and she received once again the fierce applause that she wanted. She was invited later to perform sometime by Arthur Hammerstein as a wisecracking showgirl, imagine that, for over 283 performances and was described as a beautiful ball of fire who performed as a specialty dancer, and she was a tasty tornado. Little do people know that in addition to her buxom and bawdy personality, she was also a writer. Mae West wrote a play and called it Sex. <laughs> the comedy drama performed in April 26th of 1926 at the 63rd Street Theater here in none other than New York City. It received many scathing reviews from a variety of critics because of the play's moral implications because the play was largely about sex workers and pimps. The basic storyline is this. May's character, Margie Lamont, is a sharp-witted sex worker who struggles to find a better life during the 1920s. She's torn between two men. One is rich, who has good intentions, but basically means ownership to her, and another man who loves her and will take her as she is. The play was slammed by critics, and she was accused of corrupting the youth and morals. However, the public, frankly, didn't care. And it played to full houses nearly every night. Sex, it seems, was the only play on Broadway that season to stay open throughout the summer and into the following year. (laughs) I became a writer by accident, she said. There were rumors that the play had been banned for being advertised in newspapers, but it turns out that this was false, and this was once again one of those things where May kind of exaggerated a little bit. However, she did understand that sex, in fact, sells. And so does controversy. When advertising for the play, some newspapers wouldn't even print the word sex and just put it as that play by Mae West. (laughs) If anything struck up their interest more, especially the boys in the Navy, Mae West sashaying and shimming across the stage in this play definitely won their hearts. But as a result of her writing, Mae went to prison. There were 375 performances before the New York Police Department raided the show. She was charged with obscenity after thousands of people had watched the play, including some of the police department (laughs) and their wives and the judges and seven members of the district attorney. She attended court at what is now the Jefferson Market Library, and she was sentenced to 10 days at a workhouse on Roosevelt Island and fined a whopping $500. The resulting publicity, however, it turned out, was worth its weight in gold. She requested to take a limo to jail. (laughs) She wore her own silk underwear and had dinner with the warden. She was surprisingly given three days off for, oddly enough, good behavior. (laughs) But when asked about her experience, she said, it wasn't so bad. The inmates were very interesting. I'll have enough for ten shows, but I really didn't think too much of the bed. (laughs) 
She continued to write and came out with another play. Oddly enough, that also got her in jail. Or at least, you know, kind of yelled at by the authorities. And it was called Drag. West was a woman writing about sex and sexuality, and in this case, writing about gay male sexuality. It was subtitled A Homosexual Comedy in Three Acts and written under the pseudonym of Jane Mast, and it was about the cost of living a secret life. Its hero was a closeted gay socialite who comes from one of the finest families and trapped in a loveless marriage. His father's homophobic, and his father-in-law is a therapist who specializes in what would be the equivalent of gay conversion therapy. And the play culminates in an elaborate drag ball. It was banned after 10 shows. West's casting, however, was most controversial in that she went to the West Village and cast gay men to perform in the show. Likewise, in the manner of which she opened them in the gay bars of Greenwich Village. In her autobiography, she claims to have helped a lot of them along by casting them at a time when producers wouldn't cast gay men. When it opened up in Connecticut, it was a success with audiences, but criticized as being an inexpressibly brutal and vulgar attempt to capitalize on a dirty matter for profit. It remained in New York for 10 shows, was shut down because it, quote, struck at the heart of decency. Her take was that audiences were too childlike to face grown-up problems like the homosexuals in the community had. It was too risque for mainstream, so she rewrote it, tweaked it a little bit, and called it instead, because this name is better, The Pleasure Man. And in doing so, the lead character was no longer a gay man, but in fact, a straight man. So she thought that maybe this would kind of convert it a little bit and they'd stop giving her so much shit about it. Uh, However, it did not prevent another shutdown. It had its Broadway debut in October of 1928, and as the curtain fell, the entire cast was arrested. Once more, police flooded the theater, and the drag queen performing, uh, they managed to squeeze in a speech about police oppression, and uh, then the arrests started up again. As the cast were dragged away, uh, the police were met with a wave of booze, but no booze tonight, and a crowd formed outside. However, once again, May's controversy had landed her a gold mine. She went on to pursue another project which would determine the course of her entire career, Little Diamond Lil. The arrest and the court cases did the exact opposite of what anybody helped it would do, and she created the character of Diamond Lil in 1928 in which it would effectively solidify the character of Mae West. It's about a racy woman in the 1890s. She seems to have a a theme. She likes herself quite a bit. Uh, Was her first major Broadway success and was the basis for her character, Lady Lou, in her film in 1933 entitled She Done Him Wrong. Her controversial plays, as well as stint in prison, got her the attention of none other than Hollywood. And she would star on her first film called Night After Night at the ripe old age of 19 at the ripe old age of 38 in 1931. (laughs) Paramount Pictures offered her a contract for $5,000 a week, over 80 grand by today's standards. But they also would let her rewrite her lines. In fact, in Night After Night, it sets the tone for her entire persona when she talks to a hat check girl. Don't you guys be good to go home to your wives. Oh, the fairy princess, young Marty. Marty. <laughs> hey, don't let those guys in, they'll wreck the jail. Hey, gorilla. Come here. Hello, Marty. Where's Joe? I got a 
sit on the rock. Well, he's pretty busy right now, Molly. Uh, don't give it out. You give it to me twice over the phone. Yeah, no, Molly. No please. sale, no sale. I'm going to see him tonight. Well, you wait right here, and I'll go upstairs and see if he's there. Well, I'll be right up after you. Oh, honey, how's business? Fine. You've been insulted lately? <laughs> Goodness, what beautiful diamond. Goodness has nothing to do with it. It's one of my favorite lines of any film ever. So basically, she goes to the hat check girl, gives her her coat, and she notices the amazing, obscenely large diamonds that she has. And she says, oh, my goodness, what beautiful diamonds. And May just goes, goodness had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> By this time, the persona of May West had reached perfection. This is essentially what you think of when you see Mae West. The curves, the hips, the bosom, the feather boas, the elaborate, very large hats that could double as lampshades, essentially. Uh, Glitter, glamour, gold. Again, at age 38, she's doing this. She wasn't actually that tall, though. She seemed to think she was. Uh, One of the things about Mae West is that she had shoes specifically designed for her to lift her up higher because she felt that she needed to compete with all the lanky, tall chorus girls. So this is actually one of the shoes that they have on display at the Fashion Institute of Design, that it's a shoe inside of a shoe, basically, (laughs) to give her a little bit more oomph, as it were. But regardless of these weird-looking shoes, she stood taller than anyone else in the industry. She would renegotiate her contracts for over $300,000 a picture, including a share of the profits, for all of her writing and rewriting services. But she was also smart enough to make sure that she had her name on the writing credits as well. She would boldly insist on doing her own costume design, or at least being involved in it. And she was one of the highest paid income of any woman in Hollywood. She would move forward with another film called She'd Done Him Wrong in 1933, which was an adaptation of her script, Diamond Lil. And she even discovered her own leading man, a stunning and tall man with a wicked jaw, an unknown actor named Cary Grant. (laughs) I saw a sensational-looking young man walking around the studio street. He was the best thing I'd ever seen out there. Who's that, I asked. Kaufman recognized him. Cary Grant, he said. He'll do for my leading man. But Kaufman protested, he hasn't made a picture yet. Call him over. If he can talk, I'll take him. (laughs) She would work with Grant again on another film entitled I'm No Angel. But her career would skyrocket, and she became one of the most famous looks in all of Hollywood. Here's another still of this, uh, again with the dynamic diamonds and the uh, trademark eyebrows and curvature as well again with the glitter and all the sequins, and she would design most of these. And some of them are incredibly risque, even by like RuPaul's Drag Race standards, where it's essentially just very well-placed sequins. <laughs> One of the more controversial parts of her career, and that's saying a lot, is she became so involved in Hollywood and so important as far as her contracts were. She did this film with W.C. Fields, who was a notorious alcoholic. In fact, it was in her contract that if he kind of screwed up and showed up drunk one day, she was just going to tell him to leave the set. Three weeks into production, he showed up quite drunk, and she kicked him out. She was incredibly open as well about her sexuality and her multiple lovers, in addition to being enamored with the large oiled-down boxers from her father's gym. Uh, This was a trademark uh, look for her throughout the majority of her life, and we'll get to that a little bit later. One of her possible lovers was William Jones, a.k.a. Gorilla Jones, and when the management of her apartment building in Hollywood wouldn't let him in because he was an African-American, she's rumored to have bought the building. 
She exuded sexuality even to old age and was never shy about her antics. Some years ago, you did an interview that was going to be shown on this network, but they decided it was too racy. Mostly because of the question that the man asked you, why do you have mirrors on your bedroom ceiling? Can you remember your answer? Yeah, I like to see how I'm doing. That's an interview she did with Dick Cavett. She's in her 70s when this interview happens. You can find it, and it's honestly quite amazing because Dick Cavett is just blushing the entire time. She's in her 70s when she does this. She becomes nothing short of a pop icon and lovingly parodied in Disney and Warner Brothers cartoons, short films due to her trademark wiggle. She also becomes uh, chalkware dolls that you would get at Coney Island when you play the carnival games. Uh, The design for her would be seen in Betty Boop cartoons, different caricatures, immediately identifiable. Al Hirschfeld also does illustrations of her at a certain point in time. She exudes the same characteristics that we see from her younger films into her later pop icon status. But she also becomes an art icon as well and a muse for a lot of different artists, particularly photographers and the surrealists. Here she is being photographed by Diane Arbus in uh, what was probably her Hollywood bedroom, which again, the lingerie, the big eye makeup, the hair, the eye, everything all together. And then there she is with Richard Avedon uh, with Mr. America as photographed in 1954. Once again, May being surrounded by these oiled up muscle men. This is one of my favorite Salvador Dali pieces, which is May West as an apartment where using her hair as the curtains and then her lips as a couch. And there's actually a real, real couch that Salvador Dali designed uh, strictly based on her lips. There are various different copies of this, one of which in the museum in Florida, and this was made for private designers. So her characteristics, her characterization of herself, her persona becomes more than she could ever hope to be and immortalized not only in her films, her writing, and her artwork that is represented from various huge names in art history. Oh, and she's also really popular with the military. They designed a Mae West life vest because when it puffed up, it looked like boobs. <laughs> That's a thing that's real. Uh, She continues to create, to write, to make music, to perform music uh, way into the later years of her career in her 70s. This is one of her albums. You can still find it on vinyl. It's honestly one of the most bizarre things you could possibly ever hope. Uh, In addition to writing, she was a recording artist, releasing records as late as 1966, uh, and she would never concede defeat, continued her career throughout her life. After 1949, she opens up as Diamond Lil again on Broadway, and it would perform as this role until 1951, despite the fact that Diamond Lil was supposed to be in her 20s. Uh, Never one to be outdone, she kind of adapts all the different trends, and she opens up her own show in Las Vegas. 1954, her Vegas show, she invites the women to ogle at the men in the show. So it's basically May being surrounded once again by these oily muscle men. She said that the wives and sweethearts have to sit around bored while their men applauded female semi-nudity. I was going to give the women something to look at. This is a kind of an idea of what May had in mind for her Las Vegas show. This is her show at the Sahara. Again, all of the trademark uh, May West accoutrement in addition to these attractive, muscly men that surrounded her almost like an own private fan club. She's in her 60s at this point. 
Paul Novak, who was in her show, became her life partner and would stay with her until her death. She also did numerous TV cameos, which there are frankly too many to actually show. Uh, there's another example from her show. I, I love the terrible sandals on these men. Uh, and there she is with Mr. Ed, once again with wet men. Always surrounded by these men. Uh, it's kind of almost a caricature at this point in time. This is just funny and I like to show it. Uh, she continues her film career even much later in life and unlike many starlets of the time, embraces her role as a cult icon with a film, Mira Breckenridge. I'll be right with you, boys. Get your resumes out. Actions speak louder well than words, and I'm a girl with a great experience. I know you had you another, but I can love you better than any other. Take my hand, come with me. I want to prove every word I say. I want to love you, baby. I'm going to have you every day. Well, I don't care about your credits as long as you're over sexed. Oh, that's one of my credits. A bed. I never did see a bed in an office before. Yeah, you see, I, uh, I do a lot of night work sometimes. It's, I, I just don't know how it really got made and why they thought this was a good idea. But anyway, uh, the film is an absolute bomb, and she's 70 years old, and it receives the best review out of anyone in the cast. Uh, it doesn't do very well, but what it does is it revitalizes interest in her career. Then she also writes what is going to be her last movie, which is Sextet. And when I describe this to you, it's one of the most bizarre things imaginable. She plays a much younger woman with multiple ex-husbands. That's not so strange. What's strange are who her husbands are. Ringo Starr, for example. <laughs> Timothy Dalton. For some reason, Alice Cooper is in this. Dom DeLuise. And many more half-naked men. As many as you can put on a celluloid screen without it being Rocky Horror. She creates this film. Uh, again, doesn't do very well. Oh, Tony Curtis is also in this, because why not? Regis Philbin is in this. <laughs> because who cares? You're Mae West, you're in your 70s. Hollywood just kind of let her do shit. It's from 1978, and she wrote this when she was 80 years old, and she starred as the lead in this. It bombs, but it's become a cult classic and has continued to be played in gay bars around the world. As Julia Marchese, the director of the Dirty Blonde Mae West documentary, states, she was still wearing her corsets and low-cut dresses, asking 25-year-old men, is that a gun in your pocket, or are you still happy to see me? Some might find this depressing, but May frankly didn't care. This was her final act of defiance against social norms. Diamonds were her best friend before Marilyn. Male backup dancers strutted with her before Madonna. I love that one. Muscle men and innuendos were hers before Elvira. And she is the inspiration to drag performers everywhere. The incomparable Mae West took control of the stage, screen, and not to mention her own writing credits, and somehow managed to take over in a world that wanted the demure, silent female. Silent was the furthest thing that she was going to allow herself to be. 
Working in show business since she was a child, producing work well into her 70s, she made a career breaking boundaries with innuendo and sexual independence and a husky voice, which made her legendary. She died in 1980 at the age of 87 and posthumously was voted the 15th greatest female screen legend of American classic cinema. In her 1970 autobiography, she writes, The letter I appears very often on these pages. That is because I have been given the liberty, or I have taken it, of telling my own story in my own way. And I like a story that takes its time. J.R. Pepper on May West, recorded by Jennifer Nelson at the Red Room in New York's KGB Bar. If you were not that familiar with the works and charms of May West before this episode, I highly recommend checking out our episode notes, where we will have photos and videos and links to some of her most scandalous moments. You can find that over at deadladyshow.com slash podcast. And we'll be sure to share some of those links and pics and videos on our social media accounts at Dead Lady Show. And that's also where you can get your information on advanced tickets to upcoming events. Next month, you can see the Dead Lady Show in New York on September 7th and here in Berlin on September 27th. On the podcast, well, we're going to take a short break, but we'll return very soon with a fun-filled Season 6. Season 6? Wow! Yeah! Please do share our show with anyone you think could use more dead ladies in their lives. This is episode 56, so there are 55 other episodes you could catch up on while we're having our little break. Uh, You can find us on all the podcatchers and on Spotify, of course, and we also have beautiful transcripts of many episodes available for your reading pleasure over on our website on the episode pages. They are beautiful. Thank you so much to Florian and to Molly and Jennifer in New York and to all the lovely people who came out to see that show at the Red Room under the auspices of the fabulous Laurie Schwartz. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsens and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Thank you, Susan. Our theme tune is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. Thanks to everybody out there listening. We'll be back soon with another fabulous Dead Lady. 